All right. Let's take our Bibles and turn in them to Ephesians chapter 2. Last Lord's Day we began to look at this chapter, just the first ten verses of it, and I want to return there tonight as we walk through this great letter. We understand from our study there is a massive chasm between what has been said to us in chapter 1 and what is introduced to us in these beginning verses of chapter 2. As I said last time, we go really from the heights of God's majestic glory, whereby all that you and I have as believers is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. He has certainly chosen us. He has predestined us, it says. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us and informed us of His will, giving us eternal life and an internal inheritance in Christ. All of that is a has-been-done-for-us reality. It's happened in the mind of God in times past, and it has its implications all the way throughout eternity future in Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the kind intention of God's will, so that He would have a people who would be to the praise of His glory. Sometimes we contemplate the reality of why God did what He did and how He is doing it, and that is the answer. He did it simply according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of His glory. And as we transition from all of that, that is majestic wonder in the reality of what God has done for us, we are, once we cross the chasm, if you will, we are brought face to face with what we were before God exercised His mercy to us. And so in chapters 2, verses 1 to 3, we are as we looked at last week, plunged back down into the spiritual valley of death. And the only, only shining light in that valley at all is at the beginning of verse 4, which starts with those two words that I said are the greatest words we could hear in the market of death, and that is, but God. Those Two words describe for us both what God has done and how God has intervened in what would be an endless, hopeless condition were it not for but God. Because before God ever interposed Himself into the situation, verse 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we too all, Paul speaking of him and all Jews, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as all the rest. So those words are a vivid description for us of the absolute, universal, and total spiritual condition of every human being who has ever taken a breath or who has ever walked on the face of this earth except for Jesus Christ. Locked in by our own spiritual condition in the prison of hopelessness. That's the description here. Bound for one place and under the wrath of God. And this is what makes the shining greatness and the blazing light of verse 4 so bright because into the darkness of that spiritual deadness shines those two words, but God. Those words and what they say to us make all the difference. We need to see the implications of it in our hearts tonight. First of all, first of all, we have already been exposed to the reality that God is sovereign. Tim spoke about that a little bit this morning as we were preparing to sing the sovereignty of God. Last time we were together, we were discussing the very reality about God. We said that we must have a high view of God. This is a non-negotiable for us as Christians. We must have a high view of God. In fact, we could say that that is one of the most important truths the Bible teaches. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. If God is not sovereign, then He is not God. Why? Because as we even heard this morning, I'll just reiterate, sovereignty means to have ultimate rule. It means to be the absolute and ultimate ruler. So to hear that God is sovereign is to hear that God has ultimate rule over everything. He rules over all creation. He made it. It is His. And He is in control of it. Nothing ever happens in His creation without His knowledge or Him allowing it. So even when we read in chapter 2 and verse 2 that you walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that's now working in the Son's obedience, that's all by means of the allowance of the sovereignty of God. God is controlling it all. Nothing ever happens without He allowing it. And because of that, we hear the truths of chapter 1 that we spent so much time walking through, realizing that chapter 1, they are absolutes. In other words, the truths of chapter 1 are not things that might happen. They're not, we hope so, No, because God is sovereign. All that He has said is absolute. It is a done deal. It is as good as being dried in the concrete of eternal glories of heaven. There is no turning back. It all comes to pass. And so whatever we are now is because of God's sovereignty. Therefore, all that He has granted in Christ will happen just as He said. 
we can rest in this chasm between chapter 1 and chapter 2 because God is sovereign. And so the future for us as Christians is certain because God has determined it to be so. That's the first thing we need to remember as we are walking through this. The sovereignty of God over all things. Secondly, this study tells us and those words tell us that God is holy. Holy. It is obvious to any thinking reader of this letter that Paul writes to the Ephesian believers that God is a moral God. He is a moral God. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that God is not indifferent to that which is right and wrong. Some people believe that God is like that, that it really doesn't matter. God is indifferent to that which is right and wrong. Well, holiness tells us just the opposite. In other words, He knows what is righteous and He knows what is sinful. Why? Because He is holy. That means that He is the standard by which all justice and which all injustice is measured. Therefore, because of His holiness, sin must be punished. Sin must be punished. Righteousness is to be exalted in all of His creation. And therefore, because God is sovereign and because God is holy, then that also means that God must exercise His wrath against sin. That is simply to say that God's holiness must act. God's holiness cannot sit idle. It cannot sit indifferent to that which is wrong, to that which is unholy, to that which is amoral. God's holiness must act against all that is opposed to His holiness. This is what makes our condition without Jesus Christ such a dire, dire condition. Being dead in sin is bad enough. But it is infinitely worse being in that condition because God's wrath is set against that sin. He isn't just indifferent to the sin. If God were not wrathful against sin, then it would be very easy for us, and it is easy in humanity's mind who deny God for them to convince themselves that while they may be sinners and God is not a sinner, then that they're just the opposite of each other, then He can just go His way and we can go our way. Since God doesn't like sin and He's not a sinner, then just go your way and leave us to our way. Say la vie. Let what is be. But those words tell us that God is not like that. When it says, but God, it tells us that God will not, in fact, God cannot just go His own merry way. He cannot. Holiness will not allow for that. His sovereignty will not allow for it. His wrath, because of His holiness and His sovereignty, will not remain silenced. He is opposed to unrighteousness by His very nature, and because of His holiness and His holy nature, He must rid His creation of unholiness. 
And so, beloved, as we, without Christ, are in a spiritual death valley, this is the God we need. Be without Christ, being in that place of total deadness to God, unable to turn to God, in fact, unwilling to turn to God at all, hateful of God, hostile to God in every way, this is the very God we need. Even though in our sinful mind and sinful heart, we do not even know we're in that condition. And so instead of us coming to God, we refuse Him. Why? Because dead does dead. And it only does dead. This is what dead does. Dead does not seek out living because dead cannot seek out living. And so dead does what dead does, but God. The blazing light of those words burst into the darkness of that dead reality, that scene like a bolt of lightning on a dark sky. While we are dead in our condition, unable to come to God, and unwilling in our condition to come to God, and with God's wrath remaining on us, God comes to us. God descends from the majestic heights of His glory and enters into Death Valley. And He rescues us from our humanly unchangeable condition. Each and every person, beloved, although they are physically alive without Jesus Christ. They are spiritually dead, incapable of spiritual life with God. It's not news to us. We are not holy. And that reality shows us to be incapable of a spiritual relationship with God in any kind of way that is a living one other than one in which the judge rules over us with His iron fist of wrath. And our lives and how we live proved it. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in verse 2, it's the way you formerly walked. This is who you were. This is your living. You carried your life according to the course of this world. You carried your life according to the prince of the power of the air. You may not have said you're following after the things of the wicked one, the enemy of God, and yet you were living just like him against God, according to the course of this world, working out the very reality of the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. Why? Because you were one of them. And so the Bible gives us examples to help us. To help us understand the absolute inability of the dead to do that which is living. I want us to turn for a moment over to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 very familiar passage to us if we've read through the Gospel of Luke at all. We're almost there in our study in our morning. Luke chapter 11 is a great picture of the reality of Jesus Christ and His ability to raise the dead. Am I in the right place? Is it Luke chapter 
Why can't I find it? Raising of Lazarus. From a human perspective, I want us to imagine for a moment being, it's John chapter 11, by the way. I want us to imagine for a moment being in the shoes of the people who were there on that day, spending time with Lazarus before he dies. Lazarus is sick. Of course, Jesus had gotten the news sometime before that. And Jesus finally goes after waiting two days longer in the place that he was, verse 6 tells us. And he goes to the town where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. He takes his disciples with him. And you're on the scene. You're just a person in the crowd. And you're watching all of this when Jesus is coming to the tomb of Lazarus. And from your own human perspective, you are saying to yourself, no one in their right mind would ever go to the graveyard and speak the name of a person on a grave marker thinking that in their speaking by saying, hey, listen... Listen, Joe, you listen, Frank, listen, Bill, you need to listen and get up from there because here's Jesus and he wants to help you. Come on. Jesus is here. He's a really good Savior. All you need to do is just reach out to him and he will save you. Come on. Just take the first step. He'll do all the rest. That's oftentimes what the gospel sounds like today. When someone is sharing the gospel, come to Jesus, open your heart to Jesus, accept Jesus, receive Jesus, as if that person has some ability in their deadness to do any of that. No one would go to a graveyard doing that, thinking that someone laying there in the dirt would certainly come out of the dirt and do that. We wouldn't do anything like that because we know intuitively and we know experientially that the physically dead do not have the capacity. They do not have the nature to respond to what we might say. They're dead. But Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha and they take him to the place where Lazarus is laid. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? Lazarus responds. Why? Lazarus has been dead. He's been in the grave four days. Why in the world would anyone think Lazarus would respond? Why? Well, it's not because of any initiative on Lazarus's part. It's not because somehow Lazarus saw and heard the people say, hey, Jesus is here. Open your ears. He's going to help you come out. 
No, it was none of that. He was unable by his nature to come out. Lazarus responded for one reason and one reason only, and that was because Jesus gave him ears to hear and energy to move. Jesus gave him breath of life. And He gave him the will to obey and come out of the grave. And so Lazarus responds out of his new life, not his old one. It was Jesus who was the giver of that new life. That's an example for us. Go back to Ephesians. That's an example for us of what is richly involved in these two words, but God. When you look at Lazarus in John chapter 10, Jesus or John 11, Jesus alone raised Lazarus from the dead. He's the life giver. And so it's no different when we think about the spiritually dead. And since we were spiritually dead, spiritual life must be given to us. We do not conjure it up ourselves. We do not make ourselves believe. We do not come in some kind of way whereby we do it. It is God quickening us to life. That is simply to say, beloved, that without the but God, we are simply but dead. That's it. It's our only condition. And so right here is the essence of the gospel. We were hopelessly lost in sin, but God intervened. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God intervened. And notice how this worked. Notice how it came about. Notice God, notice verse 5. God, even when we were dead in our transgressions, what? Made us alive together with Christ. Right? Even when we were dead in our sins. So our condition would have gone unchanged were it not for the intervention of God. Our condition was that of being dead in to any kind of godly influence. We were dead to it all. But God, just like He did with Lazarus, who can awaken the dead, God awakened our dead nature so that we heard the call. God called us to life. He did it when we were dead. And we responded to that call. And from that new life, we respond in obedience to the voice of God. Well, this is what God did. This is how it works. And you say, well, why? Why would God do this? Why would God, who, who has every right to judge the dead sinner, why would God do this? We've seen who we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We have seen what God did. God made us alive in Christ. But why? Why would God do such a thing for you and I who are in such a wretched condition? 
Well, there's only one overarching answer. There's only one overarching answer, and it's expressed here in verses 4 and following through four words that the Apostle Paul puts here. The only answer is simply this. It pleased God to do it. Why did God do it? It pleased God to do it. And it's expressed here by Paul in four words. The first word is this, love. Love. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. So God did this not because of something in us, but because of His great love with which He loved us. One reason for God saying, come forth to you and to I, even though we were originally dead and by nature objects of His wrath, was simply because of His great love for us. He exercised His love for us, which was a predetermined love that took us all the way back to the beginning of time when He predetermined to choose to love us. Let's make note of it here that this love that God has expressed, this great love with which He loved us, is not a love toward the innocent. Not a love toward those who are not guilty. We are not innocent before God when He saves us. But God expresses His love to us who are absolutely disobedient in every way. We are those who, by nature, followed the course of this world, led by the prince of the power of the air, the very one who controls the sons of disobedience. As Romans 5, 8 puts it, Paul says to the believers there, God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. So you see, Christ did not die for the godly. Christ did not die for the innocent. He died not for the sinfully sick. No, He died for the ungodly. He died for the dead. He died for those who were dead in sin. We were not swimming in an ocean of sin, reaching out to God, hoping that God would save us and throw us a life raft and then we could grab the life raft and thereby be saved from, by God. We were not sinking to the bottom and we just needed God to reach out and grab our hand as we were sinking to the bottom in hopes that God would save us in that sea of ocean of sin. No, we were lying flat on the ground, dead underneath all the sin because we are dead in it. I heard it stated this way recently, and I think I think it's helpful for us to hear. It said this quote, this beautiful truth about God and his unconditional love is the heart of the gospel that becomes most dear to us when, by God's grace, we see our own weakness so clearly that we know that there is nothing in us that warrants God's love. Unquote. I think that's exactly what we need to understand. The love of God expressed here because of God who intervenes in our life shines so brightly because it's on the backdrop of the deadened reality of our nature. 
Should God love us? Should He express His love in Jesus Christ to us? Well, on the basis of justice alone, the only answer would be no, God should not. And yet, God satisfied His justice through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that He might extend to us that love that He has. So why did God rescue us from the spiritual death valley simply because of love? The second word that I want to highlight here is the word mercy. Mercy. Verse 4 says, being rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy. Mercy is related to love. That's why Paul listed here first. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. Mercy is related to love. Mercy is the basis for love. And love is the basis for mercy. In other words, mercy is the extension of love in the direction of those who do not deserve to have it. If there is nothing but justice, then we would only get wrath. If God was simply a a holy God without love, and only a holy God who could carry out justice because holiness must be justified through its actions, then all we would get would be wrath. And that wrath would be a loving act. Why? Because justice must do what justice does. And yet on the cross, that loving justice was meted out. It was a loving justice because His holiness exercises itself upon sin and our sin was put upon Christ and therefore He was exercising love toward us as His wrath was meted out on His own Son so that He could show us mercy. That is simply to say that God's merciful love opened the door for His loving mercy. And so we have not received the wrath of God because God is merciful. He's rich in mercy. So instead of condemning us, Paul says, He has, by the way, which He has every right to do, He reaches out to us and calls us to believe because of His loving justice through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. So while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, walking in that world, children of wrath, by nature, God, because of His love, the outflow of His mercy made us alive together with Christ. And then He gives this third word. Grace. Grace. He did it because of His love. He did it because of His mercy. And third, He did it because of grace. Verse 5, For by grace you have been saved. It's in a parenthetical statement there in verse 5, and yet in verse 8 He says the very same thing again, for by grace you have been saved. Grace is always on the mind of the Apostle Paul. When Paul went to God because of the struggles of the ministry that 
where in his life God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul knew that his life was enveloped in the grace of God. He knew that God was extending to him his grace. We know that it it means that there... Hello. Something happened. We're good to go. Grace, right, means... I'm going to turn this off. Paul knew... He was continuously enveloped in grace. He's repeating it over and over and over again. Every book he writes, he mentions grace. We know what grace is. We know what grace means, right? We, we know that it means that there is no reason, no cause, nothing in us as to why God should have acted in the way he has acted toward us, right? It's, it's that unmerited favor. We didn't earn it. We have to be careful not to get caught in the trap of thinking that somehow God owes us something. It's easy to do. In some way, God is obligated to give us at least one chance. We think that in humanity. If we have a a consciousness of God, or at least we want to acknowledge the consciousness of God in our life, we think somehow God should give all humanity at least one chance. In fact, they believe Many, that if God doesn't give us at least one chance, then that isn't fair, or that somehow God isn't being just. But that's not how grace is defined. It's not how grace is to be understood. Grace is not based upon the recipient's ability or the recipient's merits for grace. It is undeserved. It is, if it's not undeserved, then it is not grace. Right? Because grace is a free gift. Grace isn't a gift that you bought or you paid for. It's not an obligatory payment. Grace is not from our own doing. It's not granted to us because of our own deserving reality. It's a free gift to us or it is not grace. That's why Paul says it that way in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Why did God intervene for us? Why did God come into Death Valley and rescue us? Love, mercy, grace. The fourth word that He gives us here is kindness. Kindness. So that, here's the purpose. Here's the reason why God did all that. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace, the grace that He granted us, the favor He granted us who do not deserve it, He might show the surpassing riches of it, the ultimate riches that go beyond any riches in grace, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Kindness toward us in Christ. Kindness ought to mean much to us in our lives as Christians. My Wife and I talk about this often about our kids when they were little. They used to always have sibling rivalries and things like that where they would struggle and we would often ask them how they are supposed to treat one another, how you're supposed to treat your brother and your sister. What are you supposed to do? And their answer typically was, I'm supposed to treat them kindly. That's what we taught them. You need to be kind, right? We say that often. 
to which we would often say, well, what does that look like? What does that kindness look like toward your brother or your sister? And it is like that in our own lives. We often sin against God, right? And, and others we sin against in the course of our Christian lives. And in sinning against others, we are sinning against God because God tells us how we are to treat one another. And God doesn't just come in and give us the final death blow. No. That's how we think sometimes about God. But He's kind. He protects us. He cares for us. How? By mitigating the potential consequences that our sin could bring. He draws us back to obedience. In fact, it's the very kindness of God that brings us into this place that woos us out of the grave to repent. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said, Do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience of God, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You think so little of the kindness of God, you don't even understand that it. it's His very kindness and your understanding as He woos you in this dead zone that you live in to bring you to the place that you repent of your sins. God acts in kindness and commands us to do the same as Christians. His kindness toward us is seen in the ultimate way in Jesus Christ. Why did God intervene? Because God is love. Because God is merciful. Because God is gracious. Because God is kind. And God acts in those ways. Why? Because that is God's nature. God acts according to its nature. It's who He is. He's rich in mercy. His love is great. His grace is sufficient. His kindness is is an unending kindness in Jesus Christ. In fact, it is the surpassing riches of His grace which are shown in kindness toward us. This is what happened when God reached down in time to rescue us. Even though we were dead, God made us alive. It had to be God or we would still be dead. We would not want God at all. And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. We're not going to cover all of that tonight. We'll get to verses 8 through 10 later. But, but it's by grace. It's all of grace. We understand that, but we don't think about it often. Sometimes we get into this mindset that we are saved and we did it. Somehow we... We came, even, even us good doctrines of grace people where we believe in the sovereignty of God, we believe in election, and we believe in the quickening and the, and the reality in which God regenerates us and grants us faith. Sometimes we get into this thinking whereby we somehow make it happen. The late John Calvin responded this way to this passage, and I think it's helpful, I'll just close with this. He said, quote, let us cast ourselves down before the majesty of our good God with acknowledgement of our faults, praying Him to make us so to feel our faults 
that it makes us not only confess three or four of them, but also go back even to our birth and acknowledge that there is nothing but sin in us. And that there is no way for us to be reconciled to our God, but by the blood, death, and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unquote. This is what it took. We sit here tonight as Christians. We have been taken out of spiritual death valley and taken all the way to the top of spiritual Mount Whitney with Christ. We have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Having been lost and hopeless in our sin, God made us alive. That understanding that the Apostle Paul is saying to the Ephesian believers, listen, let that understanding motivate you and drive you in this unity in Christ. I'm going to get into that whole idea here in chapter 3 and 4 as he talks about living out what you understand about your salvation and bringing together the Jew and Gentile alike so that they are representatives of Jesus Christ and not this schism in religion that happened in the early days. And so it's an exhortation to us, let the understanding of how we got into the kingdom of God be the motivation for us and how we live with one another. That's why Paul will say in verse 1 of chapter 4, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And do it with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All the same character qualities that God showed us. In order to rescue us, to exercise that in our own life. Well, let's pray. Lord, it's unfathomable what you would have done for us and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. It's remarkable to realize all that we have been given in Christ. And that you have granted that to us by your mercy, love. That you have quickened us to life so that we might believe the very gospel that we preach. And it was not us, it was all of you. And that we sit here this day as living testimonies of your kindness and grace. That the very reality of what you tell us here through the Apostle Paul, that the surpassing riches of your mercy are shown to us in Jesus Christ throughout the ages. That every day we wake and every day we breathe and every day we have the example and testimony in our life to be able to share with others about Jesus Christ is because of the surpassing greatness and riches of your mercy. And people see in us the hand of mercy. That you are a merciful God, a kind God. And that you rescue those who are dead. So we pray. We pray, Lord, that through our understanding of that, we would live according to it. And others would see in us that reality. Because we live for you. And that we would tell them about our Savior, Jesus Christ, praying all the while that you would quicken them to life, open their eyes to the truth. For we know 
that unless you call, they will not come. Thank you for this truth. Embed it within our hearts. And may you receive all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.